Matthew chapter 4, you're going to want to have your Bible open. There is an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along this morning. Also want to remind you that out in the foyer and in this side hallway, we have reading plans. This year, 2022, we are reading the New Testament together. Five chapters a week will take us all the way from Matthew to the end of the book of Revelation. And our Sunday morning sermons and our Wednesday night sermons are tied to this reading plan. So if you're following along, over this last week, you read Matthew 1 to 5. And this morning, the sermon is taken from Matthew 4, which falls within that window. Next Sunday, uh, the sermon will fall from somewhere between Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 10. So whatever you have read over the previous week, we will talk about part of that passage on Sunday morning. So the passage this morning is Matthew 4, verse 1 to 11. This is a story that you can find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and traditionally we call this the temptation, the temptation of Jesus. And I just want to make a note on the outset about a word that we call, in this story at least, temptation. The word tempted in Matthew 4.1 is the Greek verb peirazo, and it can be translated one of two ways. It can be translated to tempt. The same word can be translated to test. Temptation has the aim that you sin against God. Testing has the aim that you are obedient to God, and the same Greek word does double duty. You translate it one way or the other depending on the context of the passage, depending on the agent of the testing or the temptation. In this story, Satan is tempting Jesus. But I don't want you to miss the fact that God is testing his son. And here's where you see this idea of testing in this passage. The Holy Spirit is involved, and I'll, I'll put up a slide here that shows you the Holy Spirit's involvement. Can we put that next slide up? There it is. In Matthew, we read that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for this episode. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark's not talking about cars or pickup trucks, but he's saying that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness for this testing or temptation. Luke says that Jesus, when he went out into the wilderness, was full of the Holy Spirit. So this is what I'm saying to you. Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he is tempted by the devil. He is tempted by Satan. But this is also a test. And the triune God does not want the Son to sin. It's not a, a temptation from God. God cannot be and does not tempt anyone with sin, but he is testing the son, and both of those things are happening in this passage. I make that point to you to say this. In the upcoming year, I anticipate that you will face some temptation. I think it's highly likely. And when you face temptation, you need to keep in mind, I have an enemy who is tempting me. I have a sinful heart that is luring me away towards sin, but God is also at work in your life in those moments, not to tempt you to sin, but to test you and to give you an opportunity for obedience. Both of those things happen simultaneously in this story. Both of those things happen simultaneously 
in your life. Now, another thing I want to be clear about up front is that this story, Matthew 4, 1 to 11, is not the only time that Jesus was tempted. So if you look in your Bible, I'm reading out of the ESV, they give a little heading above verse 1, and the heading says, the temptation of Jesus. I wish that they would call this section, Jesus experiences temptation. Because when they say, this is the temptation of Jesus, you look at that and you say, so I guess this was a one-shot deal. Lucky for Jesus, I face temptation every day. He just had to face it one time, but that is absolutely not the case. This is not the only instance where Jesus was tempted. And I'm giving you just a couple of examples you can look up. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his followers about his death that is right around the corner. And Peter jumps in, Peter not speaking for God, but actually speaking for the devil. And he says, Jesus, this is not going to happen. And what did Jesus say to Peter in that moment? He said, get behind me, Satan. He understood there's a temptation in that moment in what Peter was speaking to him. Satan was involved in that temptation. The book of Hebrews, chapter two and chapter four, both say that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are tempted, yet he is without sin. He never, never sinned. Which brings us to one more thing I wanna mention before we jump in. The fact that Jesus experienced temptation has led to an argument amongst theologians. I know you find this hard to believe, but theologians don't always agree on everything. And one of the arguments that arises from this passage and others that talk about Jesus being tempted is the question of the impeccability and the peccability of Christ. Essentially, the question is, Jesus faces this temptation. Everyone agrees there's a temptation here. Everyone agrees it's a genuine temptation. The question is, did Jesus have the ability to actually sin in this moment? If he had the ability, then you would side on peccability in this debate. Or did he not have the ability to actually sin in this moment? That would be the side of impeccability, and theologians go back and forth. And it's a very complicated theological question when you really start to argue about it. It boils down to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, was one person with two natures. You are one person with one nature. You're a human person with a human nature. Jesus was one person. He had a human nature and he had a divine nature. And you cannot separate those two natures within the person of Christ. And so most orthodox theologians come down on the side of impeccability. Now, here's the thing. This is a massive theological debate. And we could spend all sorts of time chasing down this rabbit trail of peccability, impeccability. And truth be told, as I studied this passage this week, there were at least a dozen other rabbit trails that I thought, it would be really fun to go down this rabbit trail. And with the Lord's help, we're not going to go down any of them. We're going to stay right down the middle. And rather than being theologically speculative about what the text doesn't say, we're just going to try to be humble and listen to what the text does say. Which brings me to the big idea of this passage. Very simple. Jesus is the sinless son of God who came to suffer for our salvation. Jesus is the sinless son of God 
And he came on a mission. That mission involved suffering for our salvation. I want to take you back in history just for a moment. 500 years, give or take, before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there was a peasant born in rural China. His name was Sun Wu. We remember him by the honorific title he received later in life, Sun Tzu, T-Z-U. And we remember him because he wrote a book called The Art of War. That book gets quoted all of the times, and this, I think, is the most commonly quoted statement from Sun Tzu's The Art of War. He says, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. You need, according to Sun Tzu, as you go into a battle and you have an enemy, you need to know yourself and you need to know your enemy. This passage, Matthew chapter 4, reminds us that we as Christian people have an enemy. We have an enemy. This is referenced vaguely in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we'll throw it up on the screen, says this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's just broadly describing the opposition that we face as Christian people. Let's narrow it down with a very familiar verse, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter knew this firsthand. Peter to Jesus, we're not gonna let you be crucified. Jesus to Peter, get behind me. Satan. He understood that we have an enemy. We have spiritual forces of evil that we wrestle against in the heavenly places, but those spiritual forces of evil are led, they are captained, if you will, by somebody that the Bible refers to as the devil. In this passage, Matthew chapter 4, you'll find the, the name devil multiple places. You'll also find Jesus referring to the devil once as Satan. Those words essentially mean the same thing. Satan, the devil, what that means is he is the accuser. He's the accuser. He knows that we're sinful people. He accuses us in our hearts and our minds of our sin. He beats us over the head with the reality of our sin. And he refuses to let God, as if God needed to be reminded, which he doesn't, but he refuses to let God forget that we are sinful people. He accuses us before God. He's our enemy, the devil. You'll read about him in Revelation chapter 12 and 20. Some of the pieces throughout the Bible begin to come together. Who is the devil? Who is Satan? Well, he was created by God in the beginning. He rebelled against God. He is now the enemy of God, he is the leader of all opposition against God. That includes demonic opposition and human opposition. Jesus talked about sinful people as doing what their father, the devil, does. So he's this leader of opposition against God, demonic opposition and human opposition. He is not God. He is not God. He's not equal to God. 
He is not in every place all of the time, like God is. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. That is not true of Satan. It is not true of Satan. He is not omnipotent. He is powerful, but he is not all-powerful. He is very wise and cunning, but he is not omniscient. He's not all-knowing like God is. So he's not God. He is not God's equal, but he is our enemy. And part of what we need to take away from this passage is knowing the truth about our enemy, knowing about what he wants to do in our lives and understanding how temptation works. So the first question that we'll ask is this. What does this passage teach us? What does it teach me about temptation? A few basic truths. The first is this. Temptation often involves confusion about our growth. And specifically, I'm talking about spiritual growth. Not physical growth, which many of us have done over the holiday season. We're talking about spiritual growth. Sometimes we get confused about spiritual growth. And when you're confused about spiritual growth, you are susceptible to temptation. We think in our minds... The more I grow spiritually, the less I will struggle with temptation. The closer I grow to the Lord, the easier temptation will be in my life. And we have this idea that if I could just reach a level of spiritual maturity, and maybe you even think about somebody that you know who seems like a very faithful Christian, you say, if I could just be on that level of spiritual maturity, temptation would just melt away. That's a lie. That's a lie. Think about Jesus in this passage. Our passage passage begins in Matthew chapter four, verse one. But in the previous section, Matthew three, what has Jesus been doing? Well, he's baptized. He's baptized in the Jordan River by John, which is a fascinating story. And he goes into the water and he's immersed and he comes up and there is a voice from heaven that speaks. This is my son, and I am well pleased with him. And then Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus to empower him for what's to come. This is the equivalent of Jesus coming back from a week at youth camp. You go to youth camp, you listen to two sermons every single day, you're Youth pastor, Jake Graves, makes you read your Bible every morning. You're not used to that kind of stuff. You come home, you're all fired up, and you think, this is great. This is new. I'm ready to face the world. And then, to quote the late John Madden, boom, temptation. It does not work in our lives like we think it's going to work, where if we reach a level of spiritual maturity, temptation's going to go away. But we often think this. I would just warn you, when you get baptized, when your kids get baptized, when you take the the Bible reading plan your pastor has given to you and you check off like 20 days in a row, you don't miss a day. When you are faithful in praying and talking to the Lord, when you are part of a church family, 
that is serious about worshiping in spirit and truth and serious about making disciples and spiritual, uh, serious about, about missions and reaching people around the world with the gospel, when you have all of these things going in your spiritual life, you had better get ready. And you had better not think that spiritual growth is going to make temptation magically disappear in your life. That is not how it worked in Jesus' life as he comes off of this spiritual high, this spiritual experience, and it is not how temptation will work in your life. Here's a second lesson about temptation. Temptation often involves confusion about our identity, who we are. The enemy wants to confuse you about who you are. Look at Matthew chapter three, if your Bible is open, verse 17. I quoted this verse just a moment ago. Behold, a voice from heaven. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now jump down to verse three, Matthew chapter four. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, Look at verse six. He had taken him to the holy city. He had set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Verse six, the devil, Satan, said to him, if you are the son of God. What is this if? The audible voice of God the Father just days earlier had boomed from heaven saying, this is my Son, But now 40 days later, the enemy wants to create confusion about Jesus' identity. I'm telling you, the enemy wants you to be confused about who you are, about what the Bible says about you. And this cuts in two different directions. The enemy wants you, on the one hand, to be confused about the reality of your sinfulness. The enemy wants you to buy into the lie that you are basically a good person and you just need to follow your heart. If you get confused about who you are as a sinful person, he's got you. Game over. On the other hand, the enemy would love for you to be confused about the fact that God in his grace and his mercy loves sinners in spite of their sin, and that he sent Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. He wants you to be confused about the fact that you are loved by God and that Jesus died for you while you were still a sinner. He wants you to be confused about that, not so that you'll just follow your heart into any and all sinful behavior, but he wants you to be confused about God's love for you so that you begin to think, I gotta earn my way here. I gotta pull my spiritual weight or God's not gonna love you. Both of those things boil down to confusion about your identity. You gotta know what the Bible says about you if you're going to resist temptation and pass testing. You gotta know the truth about your sin and you gotta know the truth about God's love for you. Thirdly, what do we learn about temptation? Often involves confusion about God's word. Take your Bible and let's just look at how this plays out. Matthew 4, verse 3. The tempter came and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
In the Old Testament, if you look for a story that involved a miracle and bread, you think about the Israelites in the wilderness and God providing bread, manna for them. There is an allusion in this temptation to the story about God sending manna from heaven. Jesus responds, verse 4, it is written. He sets the record straight and he says, look, the Bible says man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I know it's 2021 and I know that lots of people don't care what the Bible says but this is how Jesus is cutting through the confusion. The Bible says this. So I'm not going to do that. Look at the next temptation, verse six. Takes him to the temple. He says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down and look at the dirty game that Satan plays. For it is written. That's not Jesus. If you have a red letter Bible like mine, that's not Jesus saying for it's written. That's the devil saying. The Bible says, and he quotes the book of Psalms. He misquotes it, he twists it, he perverts it, he sets it in contradiction to what other Bible verses say, but he knows it and he quotes it and he throws it in Jesus' face and Jesus hears it, verse seven, and he says, again it is written, the Bible says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. One more temptation, verse nine, he has showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in their glory And he said, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. All of these I will give to you if you just fall down and worship me. Jesus says, but the Bible says, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 in the Ten Commandments that I'm not to worship anybody. We are not to worship anybody but the one true God. Not Satan, not the devil, not the accuser, but God. The Bible says, if you are confused about what the Bible says, you are dead in the water when it comes to temptation. If your knowledge of the Bible comes from memes and pretty sunrise pictures that people share on social media and that's about the extent of your Bible reading, the devil's got you. He has literally had thousands of years to learn this book. How long have you had? I've had about 39 years, and I have certainly not spent all of my 39 years learning this book. The devil knows this book better than your pastor. If you are confused about the word of God, if you are in a church or a Bible study where there is confusion about the word of God, He's got you right where he wants you. Why in the world would I and our elders and our staff ask you to read through the New Testament in a year? Why would we do that? Do you think it's so that we can come to December 2022 and we can pat ourselves on the back spiritually and talk about we're so much better than all these other churches that didn't read the Bible together this last year? That's not the point. The point is that In 2022, you have an enemy, the devil. 
and he was prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour people, to destroy people, to devour families, to destroy families, to devour and destroy marriages, to destroy and devour relationships, to destroy and devour churches. And if we are confused about what this book says, we lose. It's confusion about the Word of God. Number four, temptation often involves confusion about our abilities. There's three temptations here. I want you to think about the first two. Take the rocks and make them bread, number one. Jump off the temple so that everyone sees the truth about who you are. You're hungry, so turn the rocks into bread and eat. And all of these people are completely confused about who you are. The only people in Jesus' earthly ministry who really had a solid grasp about who he was were the demons. People were confused. And this temptation to throw yourself off the temple is basically say, show them who you are. Why would you want to be anonymous, unknown? Why would you want people to not know the truth about you? Jump off and let them catch you and then everyone will know. You know, both of those things were temptations because Jesus could have done both of them. He could have done both. He, he had the ability to do both of those things. I have lived on this earth for 39 years. I am beaten down the door of 40. 39 and three-fourths. I have never in my life been tempted to walk out in the field and pick up a rock and tell it to turn into a Hawaiian roll. Never. I have never faced that temptation. You know, you work with Jake and Corey and some of these guys in the office, you face a lot of temptation during the week. But do you know that I have never been tempted to get a ladder, climb up on the top of this roof of this building, and jump off the front so that all the people speeding down the road can look and say, oh, look, that's the pastor of Emmanuel. Never have been tempted to do that. Why? Well, I don't have the ability to do either of those things. The rock's going to be a rock, and I'm going to splat on the sidewalk. There's not a temptation for me. There's a thousand things you don't have the opportunity to do. Probably not going to be a strong temptation for you. Somebody, I'm told, won the Powerball last night, $500 million. Is it any of you? If it is, you better tithe. If it was you, you might be tempted to say, $500 million, that's my security. But if you didn't win $500 million, you're probably not going to be tempted to take comfort in $500 million. You don't have the ability to do that. It's not something that you need to worry about. The things that you can do, the opportunities that you have, and the things that you're gifted to do, the things that you can do well, your abilities in the next year, will likely at some point involve temptation or testing, depending on how you look at it. Your abilities, the opportunities, the things that you're good at. You need to be aware that those things will likely become a source of temptation at some point in your life. It's not just a question of can I do a thing? Do I have the ability to do it? It's also a question of should I do this thing and if I am going to do this thing, how should I do this thing? Be careful 
when it comes to your abilities, and we'll flip that coin on its head and say this, number five, temptation often involves confusion about our suffering. Our suffering. I don't know what's ahead in 2022 for you as an individual, but at some point, there will be suffering, sadness, sorrow, struggle, hurt, pain, loss, disappointment. Now, I'm your pastor. I don't want you to go through any of those things. But as a pastor, I know that it's going to happen at some point. And in the midst of struggle, we often face temptation. Think about Jesus in this passage. Matthew tells us that he has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Look what he says at the end of verse 2. He was hungry. Some of you had a donut 30 minutes ago when you're already hungry. He's been fasting for over a month and he's hungry. That's suffering. And the temptation in this moment is to take a shortcut from the suffering, turn the stones into bread. At this point in Jesus' life, I mentioned this just a moment ago, nobody really understands the truth about who he is. People are getting glimpses and they're starting to have spiritual lights come on, but people don't know who it is that's walking among them. He's living in virtual anonymity. And the temptation is to say, make a name for yourself. Build your brand. Make sure they know you and think rightly of you. Throw yourself off the temple. You don't have to live in obscurity. You don't have to suffer like that. Matthew chapter 1, which we looked at last week, very clearly tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem to save his people from their sins. Eventually, he's going to suffer and die on a cross for the salvation of his people. Suffering was his mission to redeem a people. And what is the temptation? You don't have to suffer. I'll give them to you. All you have to do is bow down. In each of these temptations, there is a shortcut around suffering. You don't have to be hungry. You don't have to be anonymous, unknown. You don't have to suffer and die for these people. Suffering is a temptation. It involves suffering. Most of the time, when we look at this passage, that's where we stop. We talk about the enemy, and we talk about these temptations, and we talk about how Jesus obeyed, and we say, now you and I should do these things. The reason we tend to stop there is that we tend to read the Bible. Don't do this as you read the New Testament this year. But we tend as Americans to put ourselves at the center of every story. And we tend to read the Bible as if we were the hero of this book. We put ourselves right at the middle. We treat the Bible like this. B-I-B-L-E. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Like, you just need to read this as if it's the idiot's guide to whatever, and you're going to pick up some nice life hacks, some helpful tips that will help your life be better and easier and help you to become a better person along the way. That's reading the Bible as if it's mostly about us. Now, here's the thing. There's a little bit of truth in that. 
There is instruction here about who our enemy is and how he tempts us, and we should learn from those truths. But you are not the hero of this story, and I am not the hero of this story. And there is something in this story that Matthew is trying to tell us that is more basic and more fundamental than here's how to avoid temptation. Because you want to know the honest truth? Today, you're going to blow it. Tomorrow, you're going to blow it again. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all the way through this year. You and I are not going to be perfect this year. So if all this book has to offer us is here's how to be a better person, we're still in trouble. Ultimately, what this book has to offer us is not a something like here's a life hack that will make everything better for you, but it's a someone. It's Jesus He's the hero of this story. And most basically, the question that we ought to ask when we look at Matthew 4 is, what does this passage teach us about Jesus? Yes, there's things we can learn about temptation. And you better learn them. Because your enemy, the devil, is ready to devour you in 2022. But the real question, the most ground-level, baseline, fundamental thing that we've got to nail down is, what does Matthew tell us in this story about Jesus. And he tells you two really, really, really important truths. Here's the first one. Jesus is the sinless son of God. His life of perfect obedience secured the righteousness that we need to stand before God. This showdown in the desert, in the wilderness, is not just about, I'm gonna show the people at Emmanuel how to be better this year. This showdown in the desert boils down to whether or not Jesus will earn the righteousness that all of us need to stand before God. And really what's happening in this story is Jesus is reliving the history of God's people in the past. The parallels in this temptation story are remarkable. Just think about Adam for a minute. The Bible in Luke chapter 3 looks back on Jesus' genealogy, it goes all the way back to Adam, and it calls Adam the son of God, little s, son, the little s, son of God. And if you know the story of Adam, you know that he faced a temptation. There was a test in the garden. It involved food, just like Jesus' temptation and testing. It involved the question of what did God actually say? Did God actually say, Adam? He's trying to create confusion about the word of God. The same thing that's happening here when Satan says, oh yeah, but what about Psalm 91? Jesus, have you ever read Psalm 91? What does it say? It's confusion about the word of God. There's a temptation to take a shortcut around suffering. The devil comes to Adam and says, you know, you don't know everything that there is to know. I know a really easy way for you to know it all. I have a shortcut. And in the end, he sins. He fails the, tent, uh, the test and he falls to the temptation. Jesus is reliving that history here. What about the history of Israel? Just think about the people of Israel as they come out of slavery in Egypt. They come out, the Bible calls them in the book of Exodus, 
the son, not sons, but the son as a collective group, the son. This is my son, little s son of God. They come out into the wilderness. What's the first, almost the first temptation or test that they face? They're hungry and they're thirsty. Food is involved in it. They're tempted to question God's goodness. Why did you even bring us out here in the first place? What in the world could you possibly be doing in this situation? And they are tempted to take a shortcut. The shortcut that they're tempted with is to just turn around and march right back into Egypt. We don't want to make the long walk there. We're probably going to die along the way. We can just turn around, go back to Egypt, and our bellies will be full. They fail the test and they fall in temptation. Then we come to Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4 and we read about somebody named Jesus. The big S, capital S, son of God. And he's reliving the history of God's people. You remember Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea on their way to freedom. What does Jesus do in this passage? He passes through, Matthew 3, he passes through the waters of the Jordan River. Why did he do that? Why did he say it's, it's needed to be done to fulfill all righteousness? It's because he's reliving the history of God's people. Where they failed and they falled, Jesus is being obedient. And he passes through these waters. Israel spends 40 years being tested and tempted. Jesus spends how many days? 40 days tested and tempted. There's a temptation about food. There's a temptation to question God's word. There's a temptation to be confused about who you are. There's ultimately a temptation to take a shortcut. Every step along the way, Jesus relies on the word of God. The Bible says this, and he is obedient. He's not just setting an example for you to follow, although he's doing that. He is ultimately earning the righteousness that you need to be given to you if you want to stand before the holy God as a sinful person. He never sinned. He lived a life of perfect righteousness. And you need that. Because he lived a life of perfect righteousness, he had no sin of his own for which to die and he could die for yours. That brings us to the second truth that Matthew is telling us. Jesus came to suffer for our salvation, and his sacrificial death on the cross secured the forgiveness of our sins. What I'm telling you is, Jesus came to live for you and earn the righteousness that you need. He also came to die for you and to pay the penalty for your sins so that you could be forgiven. You and I follow the path of Adam and Israel. We're sinful people, sinful people. What we need is two things to be made right with God. We need perfect righteousness to be given to us, and we need our sin to be taken from us. And in this story, the groundwork is being laid for Jesus to do both of those things, to obey perfectly so that he has righteousness to give to us and ultimately to suffer and to die on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven. Now, earlier I told you we're not going to go off into theological speculation. I said we're going to stay on the, the straight and narrow of what the text says. And some of you are, are thinking, your minds 
working, the wheels are turning, and you're saying this passage doesn't talk about the cross. It doesn't talk about the cross. You won't find the word cross or crucifixion anywhere in it. What you find is a lot of temptation set before Jesus that involves escaping suffering. You're hungry, you poor thing. You don't have to be hungry. God wouldn't want you to be hungry. Just make bread. Don't suffer. Jesus, these people don't know who you are. Aren't you tired of that yet? They think you're Elijah. They think you're Jeremiah. They think you're some kind of prophet. They think you're demon-possessed. Jesus, you can put all of this mess to bed if you would just jump off the temple and let the angels lift you up in this powerful display. Everyone would know the truth about you. You wouldn't be suffering in obscurity. Jesus, you came. They named you Jesus because you came to to save your people from their sins. Do you know what that's going to cost you? To redeem people from every nation and tribe and tongue and language? You know what the cost of that will be? I have a shortcut. You don't have to do it that way. You don't have to suffer and die on the cross. That's what this final temptation really boils down to. How are you going to get these people back? Are you going to suffer for them? What if there were an easier way? Every step along the way, he relies on the word of God. He is obedient to the Father. He earns the righteousness that we need to be given to us. And ultimately, his life of righteousness culminates in a death of suffering, paying the penalty for our sins. This is the most remarkable truth about this passage, is that Jesus came to suffer for his enemies. We're his enemies. He came to suffer for us. Look, you can read The Art of War, Sun Tzu, and you can read a thousand other books like it that will tell you how to defeat your enemies. The world has lots of advice about how to get the best over the people you don't like or the people that don't like you. Jesus is offering something different. He didn't come to just destroy his enemies. He came to be destroyed so that his enemies could become his friends. His life provides righteousness that you need. And his death on the cross is sufficient to pay the penalty for your sins. You need to read this story and know how to fight temptation. But ultimately, you need to read this story and know Jesus. Let's pray together.